Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Oslo. Oslo. Oslo Business Forum presenterer. I think what you want to strive for is that the whole is always greater than the sum of the parts. Which means that when you get on board an investor... You really need to make sure that that investor complements you on the areas that you traditionally are not so strong at. Welcome to Oslo Business Forum's podcast, "De som bygger det nya Norge." Mitt namn är er Silvia Seres, och jag ska intervjua norska näringslivshelter som har visat väg i den digitala transformationen. Hur fick de det till, och vad kan vi lära av dem? Hello, uh, Henrik Müller-Hansen, the Chief Executive Officer of Gelato Group. Welcome to the Oslo Business Forum podcast series about the heroes that are building the new Norway. Thank you very much. Uh, this is a bit of a, an, an, a, a new experience for me as well, because we've been doing these in Norwegian, and I'm just trying to think in English as I'm talking. <laughs> I'm sure you'll do fine. <laughs> um, so um, you're... Um, one of my biggest heroes, actually, when it comes to global growth from Norway. Uh, I came back from my uh, second round of international kind of life to Norway in uh, 2003. And I fell in love with another guy like you, uh, John Marcus Lervik, who built Fast. And that story of Fast, the way that it grew, both in terms of product and technology and business and sales growth, was one of the most exciting experiences I've ever had. And then there was Opera Software, then there was uh, Trolltech, then there is Tanberg, and there are the, you know, the chip adventures of Gerföre, maybe four or five others, but really not that many. And then suddenly I keep hearing about Gelato Group and I keep discovering this um, young bunch of people at Fornebu and people are talking about That's Henrik. kind of you to say. <laughs> I don't feel that young any longer. (laughs) No, I think uh, uh, I I, I insist on that because I think we are in a similar... All right. Yeah, we're both young. That's right. (laughs) So, so, uh, you know, and you have built actually a fantastic international superstar in a business such so so unlikely as print. And I was like, what are they doing in print? I mean, who is going into print these days? Yet you are very successful in print. And so I want to explore that. And I want to explore gelato. And I want to explore your greatest recommendations, in a way, for others in terms of international growth. Mm -hmm. Before we do that, though, I'd like to hear a little bit more about Henrik. Who is Henrik? Yeah. Uh, So uh, I grew up in a very, very small village, which actually I believe has turned out to be a good advantage because you have both feet on the ground, at least I would like to think so. And this is a village in Sweden? That's a village in Sweden, southern part of Sweden. You never heard about it. It's Munka Jungby. So it's about a thousand (laughs) thousand people. Um, And then um, very early on, I um, um, basically traveled the world. I I studied in the US, I studied in Japan. I um, did a lot of work during my studies in Russia, in India, in China. I even wrote the book, actually, The Recruiter's Guide uh, to China, together wow. with a bunch of, of uh, people in, um, from Stockholm School of Economics, which uh, is the university I attended. So we actually went to China 97, believe it or not. 
and, and just traveled China and, and, and interviewed students at Fudan, at Tsinghua, at Beijing University. And then we wrote this book that was sold to big global companies. So that's a very international uh, background. I, I uh, love to travel. Um, and then in 2000, I, uh, after Stockholm School of Economics, uh, I started to work for Jan Steenbeck and Shinevik. And also Lars Johan Jonheimer, yeah, who yeah. Uh, today is the chairman of IKEA. And that I did for about uh, two years. Uh, and then in 2003, I moved to Norway to become CEO for Tele2 here in Norway. And uh, that was a fantastic time. We, we grew that company from about one and a half billion kroner revenue in 2003 to plus uh, three billion kroner revenue in 2006. And then it just became too big. Um, so in 2006, I, I resigned. Too big for your taste? Too big for my taste, yeah. Because I'm, I'm not, there well, is not so much growth. Uh, the, the, the curve is not so steep. Is that the... Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, say that the, the growth was, was uh, not so steep. I think it actually was. But I think it just became too, uh, too political, um, to be honest. Yeah. And I, I'm not a good politician. So um, I resigned. I had no clue what to do. And um, I, I bought a bunch of, of um, magazines. I flew to Portugal together with my family and I just read for two weeks. And then I came across this, in, this, this article about the company named Vistaprint. And the heading was printing for peanut, uh, peanuts, uh, making the world's highest profit margin. And um, I started to, uh, to read about it. And, and uh, it was very interesting. Giant industry, you know, 50 times larger than music. The print industry, that is. 50 times larger than music. Yeah. So the print industry collectively uh, is about um, plus minus $800 billion. Comparatively. Give music us, uh, is 15. Uh, software is, depending on whom you're speaking to, anywhere between 300 and $400 billion. And cloud computing, everyone speaks about Dropbox and, and AWS and, and Google Cloud and so forth. That's about $30 billion. Compared so to your... $800 billion. Right. So, so what I'm saying is that everyone believes they're not you know, printing any longer, but, but that's a, a complete collective lie. <laughs> Companies, uh, as well as individuals, they print um, a lot. You know, as we've they, all experienced with the paperless office dream, we're yeah, not exactly. quite there. <laughs> it's, as, it's as likely as, as the paperless toilet. So, <laughs> you know, I, I think that it's just a fact that uh, the print industry uh, is giant and it's also inefficient um, because you need really software uh, to connect all the hardware, hardware in this case being the print machines. So you need that software to actually allow a global company to manage printing all across the world um, locally mm. and then distribute it locally. Mm. And, and um, printing is really paper and pulp married with transportation. And logistics. Or yeah, and, and transportation being the logistics, right? So if you look at that, paper, paper is about 10% of all carbon emission coming from uh, manufacturing industries. So 10% is a big chunk. The fourth largest um, polluter in the manufacturing industry. And uh, transportation represents like 25 to 28% of all carbon emission in the world. And, and when we go together with companies such as SAPA, for example... SAPA has uh, started to, to uh, roll out Gelato. We actually communicated uh, a joint ambition to, um, to reduce uh, the total print volume uh, by 50% and, and transportation by 90% uh, over the course of, of two years. So by using software and connecting these printers all across the world, SAPA can actually print in Santiago and distribute from Santiago, or they can print in Sydney and distribute in Sydney. And, and the positive consequences then being that you basically have just-in-time production. Uh, and that allows a whole bunch of things So 90% of the transportation costs can be uh, cut by basically printing more locally. Yeah, or... transportation distances, right? Mm. And of course, naturally, you know, transportation costs is, is a consequence of that, yes. So... Um, you've, we've kind of gone from Henrik to, to, to printing to uh, carbon emissions and, yeah. and, and, and social responsibility. But going back to Henrik, yeah. so you've been with Gelato now for... 
So or actually, uh, we, we we stopped it in Portugal and your magazine. Reading. Yeah. So so and then. Yeah, well, then um, I, I, I went back and, and uh, I, together with my wife, uh, decided that we should bet on this. And basically what we did was we, we sold, literally, we sold everything we, we had, literally. So we sold the apartment we had in Stockholm. And, and uh, we also took the money I've been able to, uh, or actually not I, but we together have been able, able to save uh, during my time in Kinevik. And we invested everything in, into Gelato. You built and, it from scratch? Yeah. And, and um, um, at one point in time, um, I was so you know, pressured uh, fiscally. And, and Isabella, my wife, then worked at uh, Orkla, or she was marketing director for, for Lilleborg. And she went to buy a cafe latte. And when she came back, I, I, um, I was so focused on you know, saving money, saving money that... I, I actually accused her of being financially irresponsible for buying that cafe latte, and, and um, yeah, that was not uh, that was not a good statement. Uh, so I had to uh, then actually connect to some investors, and um, I um, I was almost you know uh, joining a company within the ultra private equity uh, mm. sphere. So I connected with Harlmix and and um, a bunch of other people in in ultra, and that was in two thousand and eight. And then they did um, a seed round, a seed investment uh, in Gelato. And then after that, in 2010, we kind of more realized where this was heading. And um, we uh, took on board some capital from uh, a company named Dawn Capital, Mm. uh, based in London, with um, a very good group of people Mm. that um, ever since has helped us to navigate uh, a bunch of opportunities where you can only go for a very very small amount of those opportunities. So you in terms of investors or customers or No, in terms of the growth opportunities for Gelato. I mean per, so, uh, so so what I mean is yeah, so what I mean is that when you when you take on board capital, you also take on board intellectual you know, intellectual capital. And I think um, uh, the investors we've been able to attract um, has really helped us um, uh, with much more. Can I can I ask you a question on that? Because my experience is that the the people who are very experienced in the financial mm-hmm. um, sphere usually think very differently, and too few of them have the right way of analyzing new companies and and new opportunities. What's your take on the really good investors? How do you find them, and how do you recognize them? Well, first of all, I think that too many entrepreneurs. Um, think that they have too much knowledge. <laughs> so I would, I would rather say that you, you want complementary assets. And, and if you have an investor with deep financial uh, you know, skill sets and experience, I think that can uh, translate into a lot of power uh, for, for um, uh, your journey. Uh, I, I also think that some of these investors... Um, uh, of course, are more fiscally oriented to the point where they don't embark on a journey. They just want return on investment. But, but then you've done a poor due diligence as, a, as an entrepreneur. I think what you want to strive for is that the whole is always greater than the sum of the parts, which means that when you get on board an investor, you really need to make sure that that investor complements you on the areas that you traditionally are not so strong at. So in our case, in Gelato's case, I think that Coming back to Dawn Capital, I think that uh, Dawn Capital um, has this uh, group of people that are both scar-tissued from a lot of you know, journeys together with other tech companies, but they also have a solid background um, from you know, strategic thinking, uh, fiscal planning, uh, and going global. And I think if you, if, if you combine that with the team that we have, it's, it's, uh, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. So when was this? When was Dawn Capital for you? So that was about 2010. And then um, we continued growing. And then in 2012, we started to receive a, a number of inbound calls from both the industry and traditional printers, but then also global companies asking if they could could leverage upon um, what we had built, the platform we had built. And it was really then that it dawned upon us that we should actually modularize 
the, the platform, meaning that let's say that we today manage 40 currencies and we do local VAT, value-added tax, like MVR. Um, Sorry, your model is basically that you actually own these print shops around the world or you are somehow the platform for them and therefore you need to deal with the VAT. Tell us a little bit about your distribution model. Yeah, so um, we don't own any print machines whatsoever. Um, A side note to this is that the overcapacity in this industry is is six times. So there are six times. Six times, yeah. So it's actually an industry that's perfect for the sharing economy, Mm. right? So what our software or what Gelato actually has built, what it does is it connects printers that we don't own all across the world so that a company like Lufthansa, uh, who signed an agreement, Lufthansa Cargo actually, who signed a global agreement with Gelato, can actually tap into all these print assets all across the world, uh, printing locally in Moscow, printing uh, locally in Shanghai and in Santiago at the same time when they roll out the campaign, for example. So and we, this is difficult because generally, you know, there is no cloud for printing before Gelato. Or How long was this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we so, have 45 minutes. Yes, so it is, uh, it is uh, you know, I, I, Steve Jobs was interviewed by Walt Mossberg uh, in, in something called All Things Digital, right? I think it was like 2000, <laughs> yeah, 2000 some, some, somewhere. Uh, and Walt Mossberg said, well, you know, you launched iTunes, but surely all these music companies will just follow, copy, and, and, and you know, compete you uh, out of the business. And his response was, well, it actually looks perhaps easy to do. But once you start to peel that onion of complexity, it turns out it's not that easy. And it's not that easy because it has nothing to do with music. And I think you know, ending the analogy, I think that that's exactly what what is the case with Gelato. It it turns out we have nothing really to do with printing. And I also believe that we're a complement to the existing industry. We're not a competitor to the existing industry. I think that I don't believe in the, um, I I don't believe in the zero-sum game. Mm. So for someone to win, everyone else has to lose. I, I actually believe that uh, through collaboration, you enhance the value and, and um, you enhance the value for the end customer, right? And in, in this case, if we go back to Lufthansa, by, by collaborating with all these local printers, we allow centralized macro print volumes and that are then distributed locally to be broken up in micro print volumes and printed locally and distributed locally. And that whole process of turning a macro order into a micro order, that's really what we do. But also, I think the interface, you know, we talk about digitalization, but Mm -hmm. really what's happening in this fourth industrial revolution is this um, convergence of the physical and the digital. And I think what you describe is a really beautiful example of that. You know, a really efficient digital control infrastructure for the very physical end result. Yeah, Mark Andresen... Mm-hmm. who um, is, is a co-founder together with Ben Horowitz of this A16 set, uh, Andresen Horowitz venture capital uh, company. He says that um, software eats uh, the world or software is eating the world. And I think in many industries, you see this play out mm-hmm. uh, that the digital, the digital revolution just allows you to put a lot of constructive question marks about how things have been done and how things should be done. And, and uh, that is an exponential curve. But I think what people misunderstand about that quote is that it doesn't mean the physical world will go away. It just means that the business models are eaten up and changed. And then the software still stays as, a, as an enabler or as a, as a, um, a, a new layer on yeah. top of the physical. But I think, you know, as long as... I've been reading um, a really fascinating article by a guy called Nick Carr, Nicholas Carr. He wrote The Shallows and is Google making us stupid and does IT matter? And he's a super provocating, but a very fascinating thinker about what we're going through. And he was writing about the children of, I think, Lao Tzu. Um, so the guy who invented paper in mm-hmm. China, mm-hmm. you know, he went, he was working at some emperor court and um, he was 
very, very uh, fascinating personality. And, you know, he looked at this paper, this, this uh, silk uh, mesh, very expensive. He looked at the bamboo solution, very fragile and, you know, chunky. And so he started beating, um, you know, whatever goes into the pulp for paper and came up with paper and it worked. And, uh, and later um, he, he, he got involved into some terrible scandal at the court and disappeared. But it's how, you know, this inheritance we have from him was important for the way we think and for the way we, our world is put together, or, you know, and later came Gutenberg and all of that mm-hmm. stuff. But, but um, so one of the things that he was talking about is how we still need to read paper. Mm. You know, the way that our brain absorbs information isn't just the letters through our eyes. It's also tactile. It's also, we have a spatial memory that somehow remembers positions on paper in a completely different way than we can remember them on a screen where everything is one page. And it was just the cognitive side of using paper will never go away or, or will be replaced by something that will be very different mm. in, in case we drop paper altogether. So mm. I think paper is such an important part of, you know, basically our intelligence mm. that it really fascinated mm. me. And therefore, I believe it will never completely go away, as you were saying. No, no and I, I think that uh, data and statistics speak their own language uh, in mm-hmm. this case, that people still uh, want to read things on paper, mm-hmm. or they want to absorb information on paper. However, you know, the, the, the beautiful thing when you don't own assets, and, and, and coming back to Jan Steenbeck a bit, Jan always said, never fall in love with your machines, but fall in love with your customers, right? So the beautiful thing with not having to own assets is that we can actually question when a global company wants to print 80,000 uh, brochures. You can question, is this really necessary? Let's, let's have a look at this macro order and see what happens when we break it down into micro orders and we actually allocate this production capacity to the cities all around the world. And coming back to your point where, you know, it's not that we don't need hardware, I agree with that. So when we speak about, you know, software uh, is eating the world, I interpret that as saying it's no longer enough if you just buy a machine. The value and the, the, the challenge that the customer has um, is associated with software married to hardware. So coming back to Lufthansa Cargo one more time, when... Lufthansa Cargo tries to um, make their uh, global print demand or global print production more efficient. You need software coupled with hardware. Buying just a print machine is not enough any longer. There are so many opportunities handed out to us through these um, cloud uh, solutions that is easily accessible where you know, the consequence of all those solutions have been that barriers to entry for new businesses have been broken down. And um, companies such as Gelot are able to work together with global companies like HP and Xerox, uh, as well as these global printers. And jointly, together, we actually enhance the value of those fixed assets without owning them. Are you the leading digital platform for printing now? Um, I don't want to um, say that we uh, are the leading one. There are so many things happening around the world. I think any entrepreneur um, needs a good portion of humbleness. Uh, I can say that we get a lot of support from HP and Xerox. Um, and also now we, we are um, meeting with other machine vendors. And they uh, like what we're doing. And so does um, you know uh, companies like SAPA. Why Sapa? Help us out. That's another Norwegian hero we don't celebrate yeah. enough. And, no. and you know, I think if you where actually, does aluminium come into yeah, printing? Exactly, it's beautiful. You know, uh, I mean, if you look at uh, if you look at Sapa and how they're innovating and and what they've done in the aluminium uh, industry, I think that's uh, a, a role model or a showcase we could uh, we could speak about. The value creation they have been able to generate is uh, quite impressive. The reason why I mentioned SAPA is because they've uh, also signed uh, a global agreement with Gelato. Um, and that SAPA and Gelato jointly uh, see that value is created uh, when we marry software with hardware. While we are at it, um, there are two things I'd really like you to 
expand on. One is, uh, you know, uh, I think I heard you were the first one who kind of put it as sharply. As, Come on, guys, Norway is not really a B two C country; it's a B two B country. You know, so you, we are you, we are great at creating products that the business businesses, big businesses, like you've mentioned Lufthansa and Sapa now, and we have some of these really big reference customers in Norway. Nordics, do you, do you have any other parts of the Norwegian ecosystem that have been specifically important for your growth? Well, I think that the society as such has been pivotal to Gelato's growth. I mean, the infrastructure that you're capable of accessing as a startup um, in Norway. And when I say infrastructure, I mean um, technology. Uh, the transportation infrastructure, uh, the legal system, the, the tax system. I mean, it's just comparatively. And, and I think it's fair to say I know what I'm talking about because we're operating in, in 60 countries and we're delivering, uh, sorry, we're operating in 30 and we're delivering to, to 60 countries, covering roughly 5 billion people over one print cloud. When we compare the time it takes to establish a company in any other market, to do your tax report uh, in any other market. I think Norway represents a, a great platform to leverage upon, to stand upon, when you aspire to build a global company. So I would say that is um, a particular Norwegian asset that I think we speak too little about. So basically, the you said infrastructure and society. Mm-hmm. I think I heard you talk earlier about uh, things like t- trust and and accessibility of of primary funds and th- but, but generally in Norway people are worried that you know the when you need big money there is no big money to be had. Or c- can you expand a little bit more on the infrastructure side? Well. What when, works? So, so when, you, when you build a business, you want to focus on the business. You don't want to focus on how do I do my tax reporting? How do I establish the company? Uh, how do I secure that we have uh, an easy uh, transportation system? Um, all of those fundamental components um, are in place um, in Norway. And especially if you compare it with many other countries around the world. So... It's the core aspect. It's the, it's the fundamental aspect of company building that I think uh, Norway has uh, allowed us to easily uh, access. If you take Altin, for example, um, you can rebrand that and export it to other countries. That, that's an example of just the ability for us to focus on what we should be doing, which is building gelato, not focusing on administration and, and uh, getting the basics right. But, but Hendrik, one other thing that I, I was really fascinated in your previous uh, discussions is that you, the way you talk about culture mm-hmm. in a company like Gelato, so you, you are building a company based on culture, very strongly culture-focused. And, you know, you talk business, you talk numbers, but at the same time, there is a lot of extreme ambition, but also extreme inclusion. And you have been very interesting on, you know, what's great about Norwegian culture and what you want to do differently. Mm-hmm. And you often refer to Jan Stenbeck. Can you tell us a little bit about your philosophy of culture and maybe where Jan comes in? Mm. So when, when Jan um, built all his companies around the world, he obsessed over culture. We were in many nations trying to work efficiently together as a team Uh, disrupting the media industry, the telecommunication uh, industry. And in order to do that efficiently, you want people to align on the very basic aspects of how do we work together? Why are we here? What are we building? Uh, How do we look upon customers? Uh, Why do we take these um, no decisions? Uh, What is innovation to us? I mean, all of those questions are kind of the glue that unites um, a team, in, in Gelato's case, about 100 people from plus 20 countries. Um, so for me, it's, it's an operational model um, 
that allows you coming back to what we spoke about uh, Norway you know you have the basic building block in place so you can focus on the innovation you can focus on the value creation for the customer and I I think in many ways uh, culture uh, is that same uh, platform and another thing is if you join if you join a company like Goldman Sachs or if you join Procter and Gamble or Orkla or Telenor these are well established brands and and so Tens of thousands of people have spoken about these companies. And I think many people can easily relate to what it means if you join one of those companies. Whereas if you take Gelato, it's a relatively very unknown company. So it is also kind of an obligation. If you want to attract great people, you need to provide them with the transparency needed for them to take a good decision. A decision that, you know, when you join Gelato, you, you, you don't join... Because you think you you make a higher salary uh, than you would uh, compared to Goldman Sachs or um, other companies. Why do people join Gelato? I think because we're solving a macroeconomic problem. It's it's a very tangible challenge. The print industry exists. It's uh, inefficiently allocating the digital files. uh, And Gelato represents a solution to it. And when you see the type of reaction we get from companies, global companies, uh, BMW, uh, Lufthansa Cargo, uh, Hexagon Sapa, it you you get a sense of pride, and and you feel that you're actually uh, embarked on a journey that uh, is leading to something you can look back upon and, and say I was part of that. I think many people today that have the ability to just pick and choose. And I think we are fortunate today in that we actually attract those type of individuals. They have to see why, why am I working here? And that brings me back to the culture where I think that the culture is the platform that answers that basic question. Why do we exist? We exist because we believe that sharing creativity in a more efficient manner is something the world needs. It leads to you know, the evident uh, advantages that I've spoken about previously. You and I are somewhat unusual in the, in the way that we celebrate top talent. Uh, we say that we love it and mm-hmm. we say that we need more of it. And uh, I, was, I was fascinated by one of the references that you have made in, in one of your writings. Um, you're referring to an HBR article and you say that if you want to attract top talent, you need to set a high bar for entry. Mm. And we all understand, you know, intuitively that... Mm. Talent attracts talent, I think. But how, how does that work in your case? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, so um, I, I think that actually also in Norway, this is very, very evident. If you If you look at... Um, NHH, uh, Norwegian um, School of Economics, NTNU, you look at uh, the engineers that went into Statoil, you look at the oil and gas industry, the whole fishing industry, um, all those ecosystems have attracted top talent. Now, whether or not you you want to use that phrase, um, that's, uh, I think, up to each uh, and every one, but... Um, I don't think that we are uh, alienating uh, that idea in our society at all. Perhaps you want to sugarcoat it with some nice words, but mm. uh, it's, it's clear that if you want to make uh, a change in this world, you need to attract people that are propelled by something more than money, uh, that have the basic um, strong fundament in place, and then propel that with a passion to, to make a positive change. And I think you see that all over uh, Norway and all over our society today. If I may add a, a personal comment, yeah. I, I really think that um, there is so much talent going around 
in this country. I, th- I think there's something about the school system here that makes people think on their own, think critically, solve complex problems, have a really strong ethical compass. There's so many things that are right and necessary for the future. And then we complain how, you know, we don't have enough people going for tech, etc. But I think what we still lack is good enough storytelling of the kind of storytelling that you are so good at. So basically, I think that people want the grand challenge that they will apply themselves to. And then they will use all of their intellectual and other powers. And I think that leaders who are able to tell that kind of a story, you know, a purpose with passion, um, will be getting the best heads. Yeah, and I, I think actually, in a way, we are good at storytelling in Norway. If, if you look at the whole, whole oil industry and what we've been able to do with that and how we've translated it into uh, the oil fund today, which I think owns plus minus 1% of all stocks and bonds on this planet, I mean, that is a storytelling worth telling, right? And I think that we should be more proud of that and, and we should... We should realize that when people speak about unicorns, I think um, that some of those discussions are highly confused. The oil exploration, the gas exploration, the whole fish, fish, perhaps you can say even ocean food industry, it's all about tech. And we have plenty of unicorns in Norway. But I don't know where that came in, that confusion where software has to, you know be the only thing that defines a unicorn, which I think is completely confused. And I don't agree with it. So I think we have plenty of stories and we should tell them more frequently. Mm, I agree. And they have companies like, uh, you know, Sintef have uh, spawned off at least two or three of of billion uh, dollar worth companies. And because they are far more, you know, mechanical and technical in their nature, there was there was a notice, you know, of, of a small notice in the newspapers, and then we we kind of shrugged and went on, um, while we, as you say, keep waiting for the software unicorns. And I think that's a very big misunderstanding because Norway does have amazing stories on on the borderline between these very physical technologies and and software. Yes, and also what what stems out of that mm-hmm. um, success is a bunch of companies formating and shaping an ecosystem. And and if you go to Silicon Valley, I think the ecosystem, you go back after the Second World War, basically what was Silicon Valley? It was um, what is called the apricot um, orchards and and prunes Mm. uh, orchards. Um, And with a sleeping university named Stanford. Mm. And then you had this... um, William Shockley, uh, I think his name the was. electronics guy. Yeah, and then yeah. had this Shockley semi- semiconductor. And, and out of that spun eight people moving to Silicon Valley. He was, by the way, an incredible prima donna, a fascinating uh, leader anyway. Yeah, but, you know, he, he managed to attract some really, really good people that, yeah. that later happened to exit. Yeah. They moved to Silicon Valley and they established Fairchild Semiconductor. And, and from that Fairchild Semiconductor uh, came, I think, plus 90 companies and trillion dollar uh, market uh, valuation generated. Mm. And also the reignition of Stanford uh, and also Caltech for that matter as, uh, as a platform where the sum of the, the parts... Mm. Um, it's just a very, very interesting ecosystem. And if you're surgical about it, you, you actually see that the educational system is a complete pivotal part mm. uh, of success in, in terms of innovation and, and disruption. It scales it, basically. That's the real scaling. Uh... Yeah, it does. Because I think, you know, in any innovation, for any innovation to happen that is, that is truly uh, transform, yeah, transforming, you need... A time. You need a time period, and and sometimes that time period is longer than an investor would like to accept. So, in the under the protection of a university, you're actually free to create. You're 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 free to think, which is one of the reasons why from from Stanford more than forty thousand companies uh, originate. And uh, some people say that Stanford has created uh, plus 5 million jobs, which is almost equal the amount of people living in, in, uh, in Norway. 
So coming back to this uh, thought about uh, ecosystem and and um, and storytelling, and I think we need that type of uh, reflection sometimes that we have those ecosystems, we have those stories. We've done it in an industry like oil and gas, and we've done it in fishing. And I think we can take that and move into green tech. I think we have the um, possibility of translating it into medicine. So that foundation is something we should speak more about. Mm. Talking about ecosystems, um, I would like to ask you to go back to Jan and Sinevik. Mm. And you have been talking about Jan Stenbeck and mm. how big a hero he is of yours. Mm. And you, you quoted him on a couple of things. C- c- can you tell us, you know, your favorite uh, learnings <laughs> from Jan? He seems, are, to, you know, yeah. he seems to be creating a very important ecosystem. That he or, has. Or, I mean, Niklas Sandström. before I worked for Jan, Niklas Sandström had founded Skype work for Jan, right? And, and uh, there are these uh, summer talks in, in Sweden. And, and uh, when Niklas uh, held his summer talk, he, he said that it was instrumental for uh, building Skype and also now Atomico, right? And the single most important learning that Niklas had when he worked with Jan was that Jan always came back to, it's never the, the big that wins over the small, but it's the fast that wins over the slow. And, and in another way, that's the analogy he always used when he spoke about the nomad people. So he, he really liked the nomad people and uh, what they represented because you know they travel over vast landscapes. They don't stand uh, and, and protect the ground. They move to fertilize grounds. They never underestimate the barter deal. Agility is kind of underpinning um, their whole uh, way of thinking. So um, my personal you know, anecdotes and my personal um, favorite examples from, from Jan, well, I can tell you the first time I, I um, the first day at, at work, it was in January 2000, and I had dressed up in a dark suit, a white shirt, and a beautiful tie. And I came up to him and I said, you know, good morning, it's uh, Jan, it's, it's my first day at work. And he looked up at me and he, he looked terrified and he screamed out the hallway, you know, who hired this solicitor? <laughs> and then he looked at me and he said, you know what, Henrik, take off that um, tie, uh, take off uh, the suit and uh, put some color uh, on you and let's go and build companies. <laughs> so he had this type of, you know, um, demeanor with him that was just very oriented around the passion to build companies. Also this uh, entrepreneurial yeah, uh, kind completely. of uh, need to pick up pace. Yes. Mm-hmm. And he had this balance also between life and entrepreneurship and creativity. So two things he many times came back to. Um, one was saving happy memories because life is short. Mm. And that actually propelled me to resign from Tele2 and take a leap of faith and sell uh, everything we owned and invested in, in, um, in this dream. Um, and then another thing he always came back to was uh, never ever fall in love with your assets. You should always fall in love with your customers. So what's, what's the customer value of what you're building? And in a way, you know, when I was CEO for Tele2 here in Norway, we used uh, what's called MBNO, a mobile virtual network operation. And that means we never built the network. We leased capacity. Because also in the telecommunication industry, you have a tremendous overcapacity, mm. except one hour during uh, New Year's Eve. Um, but we leveraged upon that and, and built uh, a beautiful business. And, and that whole concept of MVNO stemmed from Jan's uh, view that you should not fall in love with your assets, but you go should light. go light and travel fast and focus on the customer. Mm-hmm. You know, one time he invited me and I think like 50 other people from all over the world to his house in Luxembourg. And we came into uh, his uh, quite sizable backyard and he had bought a, a tent from a Bedouin tribe. And in that tent, he had placed um, 50 pillows. And then for three days, he invited people from all over the world. It's like he invited a, a senator to speak about lobbying. He invited a person from Knesset to speak about paranoia. He invited, you know, an amazing uh, folk band from, from Russia. Um, um, sushi chef from Japan. I mean, 
And his whole point with that was, whatever you can give your children, he said, it should be the knowledge uh, about many things. They don't have to go deep, but they should go broad because it fertilizes curiosity. And curiosity is kind of the fundamental aspect of innovation and entrepreneurship. So he, he, during these three days, he basically married a lot of his you know, concepts, both in the way he spoke, in, in the people he invited, but also the whole scenery, the whole setting, right? You cross-fertilize with yeah. different perspectives and completely different models and completely different vocabulary. And I really think that perspectives, they are not additive, they are multiplicative. Mm. You know, they, they expand in dimensions. And so nothing in the world is really, truly new. But when you look at an old thing from a new perspective, it creates an enor enormous amount of value anyway. But, but we live in a world, I think, that still appreciates depth and specialization a little too much when it comes to professional progression. And so uh, do, you, do you do that differently in your company? You know, how do you encourage breadth? So, first of all, I think that it varies depending on when in, 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 in uh, our face, um, you know, you actually are. So if you go to the very starting point of Gelato, I was fortunate enough to... Um, Uh, get two people on board. Paul Torvikness, who's now working for Innovation Norway. Um, and I worked together with Paul in Tele2. He was the COO um, of, of Tele2 Nordics. Um, and then Mike Arbutsov, whom Niklas hired very rapidly after he left Shinevik uh, and Tele2 to found uh, Skype. So uh, Mike and, and uh, Paul came on board and they are survivors. Uh, they are extremely complementary to, to me and, uh, um, and, and much more uh, intelligently uh, powered than I am. Uh, and so the complementary assets, again, the whole was much, much greater than the sum of the, uh, the individual parts. So at that point in time, you focused a lot on just surviving, right? Then we came into a phase where you needed to have more generalists, Um, to, who, who could translate our vision into management, into leadership. Of course, you always need leadership, but, but translating more on a generic structure. level. Yeah, structure. Mm -hmm. um, now I feel that we are in a different phase. Now, uh, let me take one example. So next year, the whole EU will go through a pretty serious uh, regulation in terms of um, personal protection, a data protection act, uh, We need a person who is very oriented around security. Um, that is now the right face for our company. Uh, going back three, four years ago, it was not. So I think for us now, we actually like specialized people. <laughs> um, but it's really depending on where in the journey you, uh, you are. But then you have, you can still have breadth on a team level, right? And yes. it's the way you talk about complementarity that I think mm. will be crucial now. Yes, absolutely. So you also then really need to know what's the higher the bid, what are, what mm. are the areas you, you really need to cover mm. uh, as you move forward. Mm. And make sure that people actually understand that, respect it, and, and, you know, work with, not against each other or, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But that comes back to the culture and why you exist as a company, because those type of questions come when you're confused on the reason why you exist. I have to ask you a little bit about China and your exploration yeah. of the world. You've recently been to India and visited print shops and came mm -hmm. back somewhat mm -hmm. um, shocked. I'd say, and and you know, ha, ha, but you still feel that you have a very important social responsibility in all these businesses. You know, t tell us a little bit about the, the, the opportunities and the challenges of that kind of international growth. Yeah. I mean, we all have a responsibility, uh, every company, every individual, to, um, to do and represent good things, of course. Um, when you come to a country like India, just to put a bit more color to, to that comment about being shocked, I mean... Uh, perhaps we are also very naive when we grow up in the Nordics. Um, our view on how the world should look and how people should uh, work under what conditions um, 
are uh, not applicable uh, to uh, some countries around the world. And India, naturally, with 1.2 billion people, um, they have their challenges. We have ours, but they have theirs. And, and what we must secure as a, a global company now is that when we access local print assets or local um, print uh, factories, that they abide and support um, uh, the values that we, um, that we want to represent. So in India specifically, we work together with Ernst & Young. Uh, and, and what we do is we work together with our print houses and Ernst & Young to make sure that um, the level of quality uh, workers, uh, security, uh, represents what we want to represent. In, in the case of India, if we move, uh, sorry, in the case of China, if we move to China, one of the challenges we were faced with was all of a sudden we couldn't use AWS, Amazon Web Services, uh, where we up until the launch of, of uh, China had stored all our data. In China, due to um, the Chinese walls, the firewalls, uh, we could simply not get the speed uh, needed when you access our service um, uh, to the level which we want without moving into Alien or AliCloud. So we basically uh, had to reinvent and restructure the way we access and the way we store data across the world. So should um, one of our global companies like Blue Air, who manufactures uh, air cleaning systems, um, if they made a change in the file in, in China, it had to be replicated all around the world at the same time. So basically then AliCloud and AWS needed to speak to each other, both on a deep level, deep data storage level, but also on a front cloud level, the elastic cloud level, the, the rapid access level. So it's just one of those, we spoke earlier about what is gelato and why is it difficult. That's one of those layers uh, when you peel the onion, all of a sudden you um, stumble upon something that you could not foresee before you took the decision to launch China. But Henrik, I have to, I have to do one one little pick yes. on this um, because you 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 know at the same time I think you're learning something about Chinese business that too many globally focused companies are kind of avoiding. You know, we kind of hope that Chinese guys will figure out their own infrastructure and all their ecosystem needs. And the way that you refer to AliCloud, which I assume is Alibaba's yeah. parallel of the Amazon exactly. own cloud, you know, it make I think what I pick up from the finance industry is how incredibly important the developments, you know, in companies like WeChat and Tencent mm. and Alibaba and Baidu will be. And they are creating something globally just as powerful as the GAFA, the Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, yet we have a complete blind spot for them. But you don't. I think coming back to, you spoke about, or you wanted me to speak about Jan Steenbeck. If you, if you look at how Jan thought about this precise problem we're discussing now, he translated that into information arbitrage. So uh, after he left Harvard, he, he went to Wall Street. And then from there, he basically saw how industries disappeared and how industries emerged. And when he came back to the Nordics to invest in something called telecommunication and media, um, people didn't understand what he was doing. And, and uh, many thought that he was irresponsible and some uh, also laughed at him. But he did it because he had information arbitrage. So I think we don't have a choice. If we want to invent, if we want to um, build companies that make global impact, you, you have to seek information and curiosity is your best companion in that. And uh, ignoring... Um, a company, uh, or sorry, a country like China, I think that's um, not aligned with innovation. <laughs> and especially not being uh, such a, a small um, country as uh, Norway. Mm. So for us, it's a great opportunity. And what I have grown to appreciate and understand is also the respect that many Chinese people and business people feel when it comes to uh, Norway and doing business with Norway. So 
I think we have everything to gain by being uh, curious and by seeking information before it finds us. Mm. Very interesting. The other thing I'd like you to help us with is this idea around you know Google and say Amazon mm-hmm. as really necessary partners, uh, yet you know not the only providers of absolutely every digital service people can dream up. There is this need, there'll always be a need for a specialist layer of services in all kinds of verticals that I think other companies do better because they can be more specialized, because they can be more vertical. You are playing that, but it's very, very difficult, of course, because these global mega monopolies are growing and they're very growth hungry. So how do, how do you play that double part of, you know, being a partner, being a competitor? I wouldn't say that we are necessarily a competitor to uh, Google or Facebook, but it is difficult to navigate. It's difficult to navigate because they are so dominant uh, forces, especially when it comes to customer acquisition. So the cost for us to do advertisement on Google and Facebook has uh, skyrocketed during the last, uh, yeah, basically every year. Um, But um, I think in the end, I think it was Michael Drexler um, from Walt Disney. He said, in the end, it's all about the product. So What it means by that is if you cannot entice and convince the consumer or the customer that you add value, unique value to them, you will struggle to use Google and Facebook as acquisition channels. Um, If you manage to convince the customer that what you provide is unique and they should stay with you, thus building customer loyalty, I think Google and Facebook are growth engines that you could really leverage upon. I think that's a very, very uh, important part of companies. Global uh, companies with global ambitions need to play that strategy very uh, careful. And I really hope that we can go later deeper into that in some uh, other setting. Mm. We are coming close to the end of our um, allotted yeah, time, yeah. and and what I would love you to comment on are really two things. Um, I'd love you actually to talk more about Silicon Valley versus Norway. I'd love you to talk about um, how public institutions play a role. Um, but the two questions we have to finish with are, um, where's the politics of this? Mm. You know, I think politicians are extremely good in Norway, but they have a different language and a different set of models. And how can you translate what you talked about now into something that is relevant for politicians? And then the last thing is, you know, what would be your three top Mm -hmm. uh, advices? So when it comes to politics, um, I think that we can look back upon one uh, global success case in Norway that um, um, regardless really of left or right has been um, joint understanding, which is how do we allocate, how do we preserve, and how do we build value from oil and gas and everything we've done with Mother Nature. So I think that translates into when the government or when the politicians have a unanimous understanding about what is the high-order bid, what is the key objective we have set out to shape and and to build, then very... um, good value is created for the society as a whole. The key objective for the, the, new, objective, for the new game then? Yeah, the, the key objective, um, if you go back to uh, this particular case, has been to how do we maximize for future generation the value we extract from oil and gas. Mm. Which brings me to, I think, what the government um, should do and what they shouldn't do. So what I think the government should do, and which is our next um real big target as a society is is in a, is education i i think that for innovation to happen you need to front load it um with education and that's why the the teachers actually in norway they are my heroes they they actually take care of our children um basically more than we do uh, at a very young age to adulthood uh, they listen to our children. They, they support them in their dreams and their visions and their ambitions. 
and it links back to the importance of education, I think. If, if, if we want to um, innovate uh, and, and create the, the next generation of companies, um, I think the school system, the educational platform is completely instrumental. You say front-loading education. What do you mean by that? So I, I mean that you need to front-load innovation with education. Okay. So education comes before innovation. So what do you need to educate in? What would you focus on? Well, first of all, you uh, need uh, to understand that the today's educational system, I see my own children uh, learning about all the capitals in Europe, um, learning uh, the same uh, things that we uh, were taught in school when we were young. Um, and it hasn't changed much during the last hundred years. So it's a consequence of how you produce the T-Ford mm. um, hundred years ago. And uh, so that's the first challenge I believe we're faced with. Singularity University um, is an example of how you can challenge education where their ambition is, you know, they have an audacious goal, which is we want to teach people that have an idea on a new product, a new service, that can positively impact a billion people or more through technology. Mm. So it's an audacious goal. It allows us to think big. And that is what I believe is the next big quest for, for Norway, because we have so many things going for us that if we crack that, we can actually become kind of an educational hub. Um, I speak about the... Um, uh, my dream and uh, ambition to create NICE in Oslo, which is a Norwegian Innovation Center for Entrepreneurship, and take back Morten Hansen, whom together with Jim Collins wrote Good to Great and Great by Choice, mm -hmm. and Why the Mighty Fall, mm -hmm. and have him as principal for that school, and invest billions and billions of kroner to build you know, just a completely unique platform for global education uh, with a global group of people uh, but based in Oslo. Mm. So that's what I think the government should do. What I think they shouldn't do is regulate. So um, regulations will um, stifle innovation. And I think regulations allow us uh, to um, be confused uh, short term. And, um, They're too restrictive? They're too conflicting? Well, well, I think that if we try to regulate innovation we short-term might be able to protect ourselves, but long-term it has a peculiar way of finding its way across our border. So I think it's better to leverage and have this openness and, in a sense, aggressiveness to seek out the opportunities that new technology uh, allows us to access and not regulate our way out of it, because that's a short-term um, gain, but a long-term pain. And that maybe requires also a new way of uh, working with regulation, you know, faster, more flexible, more risk-taking, but learning in the long term or the short term. What do you think? I, I think that the government has a role to play when it comes to how they, um, how they think about digitalization, how they think about new technology. And of course, it begins with their own work. Today's um, consumer is used to rapid access, high customer-centric services. And then you, you're faced with the governmental aspects of that, which is often, you know, you have to go and physically sign a paper. You ha can only vote face-to-face uh, -face and so forth. So they, it has to start with uh, themselves embracing this uh, as a government. But I have to add, though, we have things like Altin and so on. And I think sometimes... We are too quick at just taking them for granted as well. So I think, again, celebrating the really yeah, good successes absolutely. we do have in the public is, is, in some areas, I think we are the best in the world, I, yet I we still admire agree. Estonia. Or, yeah. yeah, I completely agree. But I also think that the question you asked is not only about Norway, it's, yeah. you know, Government. gov governments in general and, and how politics can play a role in, in breeding and feeding innovation. I agree, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Henrik, um, your three uh, central pieces of advice to others who are not just entrepreneurs, but are actually scaling an international business. Yeah, 
That's the, that's the place where we fail most often, mm. I feel, in Norway. Mm. Well, I wouldn't say Norway in that case. Uh, Globally, the, maybe. Yeah, I think everywhere. Mm. Um, my Well, with my scar tissues, I would say that the first, uh, and I'm, I shouldn't rank them, but the first thing that c- comes up is obsess over customers. You, you have to, you exist because there is a customer in the other end that wants to benefit and, and uh, live a better, more efficient life thanks to your existence. And, and it's very easy to fall in love with development. Uh, but it's, uh, it's not the way to build companies. Uh, I think you have to, and which leads me to the second point, you have to ship. You, you, you need to ship, you need to create revenues. And um, myself, I was very, very motivated by shipping because I had no money left. Right? Shipping, you mean basically shipping, send your products yes, out send there, your products, sell them. Get them to customers. Don't wait for ultimate no. perfection. You know, perfect is the enemy of good. That's, that's a golden rule for an entrepreneur. So you really need to ship. And then um, finally, I would say you have to think long term. People will mi- misunderstand you. Uh, when I said I'm going into printing, you know, my mother uh, uh, prayed uh, for me and thought I had gone completely mad. But you have to have that stamina. You have to, you, you believe in something. You've seen something. Um, most often it fails. Um, but at least you have a passion and, and uh, you, you have a belief system that allows you to get access to that energy you need to, to build. Which, and a final note, you said three, I'll give you four. Think big. Because if you can't dream it, you can't build it. I, I, I think uh, one of my, my anti-heroes, Donald Trump, said something along those lines. You know, if I'm going to be thinking anything, I might as well be thinking big or something like that. And, you know, he's a living proof it works. But... Um, I think it's a really, really important piece of advice. I think too often we are scared of our biggest thoughts and we kind of park them for later. Uh, and, and life's too short for that. Um, Henrik, thank you so much. You're an inspiration. Um, well, likewise. I'm, I'm, <laughs> honestly, I'm super impressed with your background. And I actually asked before this podcast if we could get some time together to sit and chat because I think we at Gelato and and including, of course, myself, uh, we have a lot to learn from you. I'd love to do that. Um, We we wish you all the very best with uh, Gelato and it'll be super exciting to see how this goes into the future. Thank you for sharing your time with us. Thank you very much. Tusen takk for at du lyttet til Oslo Business Forum sin podcast De som bygger det nye Norge. Hvis du likte det du hørte, følg oss og gi oss en tilbakemelding på iTunes. Det hade vi satt stor pris på. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com.